All right. On this third Sunday of Advent, as we have lit the third candle, the shepherd's candle, and we think about the joy of the Lord, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you for the gospel of Christ that, Lord, began with the very opening words of scripture. In the beginning, God created. And God said, let there be light. Lord, there is no more good news that, than you bringing light out of darkness. Lord, this is good news that you anointed Jesus to preach good tidings to the poor. That, Father, you did not forget about the nameless, faceless, insignificant ones of the earth. But you came first to them to show that you take the foolish things, the base things, to confound the wise. Father, I pray that you would use us in such a way to confound the wise and to bring to nothing the mighty. Father, use your people and use your church for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this third candle on the Advent wreath is the shepherd's candle. It symbolizes joy. To the shepherd's great joy, the angels announced that Jesus came for the humble and for unimportant people like them. He didn't come just for them, but he did not forget them. And through the very way that Jesus came into this earth, the very way that God tore open heaven and sent his son shows us that God works in ways that are contrary to the ways of the world. Here in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In other words, the Lord Jesus came for those who needed him most. Not that we all don't need him, but some know their need more than others. It is no accident that God announced the birth of the Savior to poor shepherds out in the fields keeping their flocks by night. God did not send his holy angels with the glories of heaven to kings or to world influencers, but to poor, nameless shepherds 
in all of their insignificance to the world. Jesus, even in his birth, was fulfilling the message of Isaiah. Even at and in his birth, Jesus was anointed to preach good tidings to the poor. When you think of the brokenness that is often experienced by the poorest among us and the bondage of circumstances often beyond their control, we begin to understand the mission of Jesus. Rich or poor, comfortably self-sufficient or miserably dependent upon others for survival, we all are poor. We all are broken and we all are in bondage to sin and death until the Savior heals us and sets us free. Jesus came to proclaim good tidings to those who recognize their poverty. This is why Jesus would say things like, for those who have ears to hear, for those who have eyes to see. Jesus binds up the brokenhearted, liberates the captive, and sets free those bound. Verse 2 declares, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is why Jesus was anointed by God. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. This is why Jesus came. This is why we still celebrate and worship and remember In over half a millennium before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah penned these words that I just read to you. And Jesus fulfilled them. In Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, Luke writes the words Jesus spoke when he went to the synagogue in Nazareth. After his temptation in the wilderness... Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And then Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke quotes the Septuagint version of Isaiah 61. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures were originally written in Hebrew. And because Greek had become the language of the world and was the language of the world for several centuries... By the time Jesus was born, the Jews had translated the Old Testament scriptures out of Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, and it is what many of the Jews used for their scripture because so many people spoke Greek, wrote Greek, read Greek. 
because Greek in that day was kind of like English is in our day. It was the language of the world. And in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, it says that Jesus came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord to set at liberty the captives, but it also adds the recovery of sight to the blind. And when Luke quotes the Septuagint version of Isaiah 61, he's conveying a complete opening of both prison doors and blind eyes. This is on purpose. This was fulfilled for some physical blind. Jesus literally healed blind people. But what was most important and how the scripture was most completely fulfilled is in those who are spiritually blind. This is the liberty Christ brings to those who are being oppressed by the work of the devil through sin and fallen humanity. In fact, Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians that it is the God of this world who has blinded the eyes of men that they may not see the glory of God. Jesus was anointed to come and to open blind eyes, not just physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. You can be physically blind and still see Jesus. But if you are spiritually blind, you can have 20-20 vision and miss him. And what is most important is that we see Jesus spiritually by faith. That the eyes, our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our understanding be open. That we would see and that we would know Jesus. Jesus proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the year of the goodwill of the Lord. This is the proclamation of God's jubilee when all of God's people who are bound will be set free. When all of God's people who are in debt, their debts will be forgiven. And this is what Jesus did. We owed a debt that we could not pay. We were bound in a prison we could not escape from a prison of sin and death. And the debt of sin was higher than any price we could possibly pay. Jesus came. He paid our debt. He opened the prison and set us free. It's not the initiation of an exact 12-month year, but the initiation of the time of the goodwill of the Lord, the time of His promised salvation and peace. It is also the time of God's vengeance. Jesus, in going to the cross, judged this world, and the ruler of this world was cast out. This is what Jesus says. It's recorded for us in John 12, 31, just before he goes and is arrested and ultimately taken to be crucified. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did indeed accomplish his purpose for coming. He did destroy the works of the devil through the redemption of God's people. This is what 1 John 3, 8 says, for this purpose, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. 
In his redeeming work, God comforts those who mourn. Jesus has set the captives free from the works of the devil. In Christ, we are no longer hopelessly bound by sin. He is our peace who has broken down the wall of separation and brought us near to God by his blood. In Christ, we are now members of his household and members of his body. Verse 3 says that he came to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus came to console those who mourn in Zion, the Bible is beautiful in the way it addresses the realities of life. Have you ever noticed that about the scripture? It lays it all out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything. I always tell people if, if man, because many people think the Bible was just written by men to try to get people to believe into a, a God so that they would have some distraction from real life, some crutch to lean on. I'm happy, I'll tell you, I'll confess to you, I'm happy to lean on the crutch that Jesus is. But if the Bible were truly written by men to try to deceive or convince men to believe in some God, they would have never written the Bible the way it was written. They would have never put in the Bible the things that are put in the Bible. And here it says that God anointed Jesus to console those who mourn in Zion. And the Bible presents this reality of life. God promises to console those who mourn, which tells us that life will give us a reason to be mournful. The Bible does not present a false reality only to make us feel better. Jesus didn't preach a gospel just to ease people's pain. He preached a painful gospel to free them from their sin and from their death and from ultimate pain. The Bible does not present this false reality to make us feel better. The Bible does not lie to us, but the, it tells us the truth in order that we may be set free. We will have reason to mourn in this life. We have all sorts of reasons to mourn, whether it be the death of a loved one, whether it be the loss of something near and dear to us or our inability to achieve or to do what it is we've set our hearts to do. We will have reason to mourn in this life, but God promises to console us, to comfort and to extend compassion to those who mourn for whatever reason. And it is not just sadness that the, that, that the experiences of life and death bring but is the sadness we experience for sin. Sin is the greatest and most persistent reason, the most present reason we have to mourn. Jesus redeemed us from our sin. There is no greater consolation we can experience, no greater joy than the salvation that only Christ can provide. To console those who mourn, he has given the joy of his salvation. God gives beauty for ashes. 
beauty for ashes. Think about that. This is a picture, a very stark contrast. Imagine a forest, a burned out forest on one side of a riverbank. And then imagine a beautiful lush green forest on the other side of the river. This is a contrast of life and death. This is a contrast of those rejoicing and those who mourn. Every time I drive through Bastrop, you can see this picture where the Bastrop fire burned tens of thousands of acres. And there is all of those left burned out trees. And now years later, over 10 years later, the underbrush is growing up. and You still have these burnt trees sticking up out of the underbrush. But then there's a road, and then right across the road, here's the lush, full-grown forest, never touched by the fire. Just across the road, across the highway, here is acres, thousands of acres of burned-out forest. God gives beauty for ashes. To give beauty for ashes pictures the contrast of sackcloth and ashes worn by mourners. Contrast that with the beautiful garments of joyful praise and rejoicing worn by wedding guests. The contrast of a funeral or a wedding. This pictures the joy of our salvation from sin and death. The beauty given to us in Christ has replaced the sackcloth and ashes of sin. From the mournful ashes of death, we put on the garment of praise and the royal robe of righteousness that now engulfs us in Christ. Like a child who puts on their parents' clothes and they're just swallowed by the clothes of those parents. This is what God has done for us in clothing us with the garment of praise and the robes of righteousness. We are swallowed by His praise. We are swallowed by His righteousness. The very robes, the very clothes that He has put upon us by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. To give beauty for ashes is to give life for death, it is to give Christ for sinners. We are cleansed and dressed and also anointed with the oil of joy for mourning. Oil was used for many purposes. It's why we still use oil today. There's no magic in that oil. The magic is in God. The magic is in Jesus. The magic is in his gospel, in his power, in his ability, in his willingness to heal. And to do what's impossible for man to do. But we use oil as a symbol. And oil has been used for, well, since they created oil. Since they discovered it. Not from the ground, but pressed from olives. Mixed with spices to make anointing oils. Oil was used for many purposes. Oil was used for the anointing of priests and prophets and kings. Oil was used for binding up wounds and for healing. Oil was used as a sign of joy. The oil of joy was literally poured over the heads of those at festivals and events and occasions of joy. It was a mark of joy in contrast to mourning. And the scripture here says that God has anointed us with his oil of joy for mourning. That is the Holy Spirit. 
There is no greater anointing, there is no greater joy that can be given than the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Jesus now, you have that anointing. That anointing is not an anointing any man can give you. That is an anointing that only God can give you. And he gives it to all of his children, to all of his kings, to all of his priests, to all of his prophets, his proclaimers. And that is all of his children. He has given to us the oil of joy for mourning. And he has given to us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we of all people have reason to rejoice always. There is never a time we have no reason to rejoice. In Christ, we put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And why, why was Jesus anointed for this reason? Why has God purposed to do all of this for us through Jesus? Well, the scripture answers that question for us. Verse 4 answers that question for us. That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The word that, that they may be called trees of righteousness, that word, that, is indicating What preceded it is bringing us to a certain conclusion. And the conclusion is the reason the Lord has anointed Jesus to preach good tidings to the poor. It is the reason he was sent to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison, to proclaim goodwill and vengeance, to comfort and to console the mourners, to give beauty for ashes and oil for joy and praise for heaviness. The reason for all those things is that they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The word they there in that verse 4 are God's people. Israel. Isaiah is warning Judah to repent of her sin, warning them of coming judgment. God anointed Jesus. God sent the prophets to heed the word of the Lord that they would become trees of righteousness. They are God's people. We today are they. You get that? The they in verse 4 is we today. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are God's people. We are God's Israel in Christ. Jesus has come to do all he is anointed to do so that we may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Think about it. What the scripture is picturing here, it is a picture of a Abundant life. 
and consistent fruitfulness. Trees that are planted with purpose. The planning of the Lord. This is a grand garden that we're seeing described here. What is the purpose of us being trees and being planted by the Lord? The purpose is that he may be glorified. That this is the purpose of all things. That he may be glorified. This is the purpose of all things bitter and sweet. Hard and easy. Light and dark. Life and death. It is hard for us to understand, but this is what the Scripture teaches us. It's why we should live our lives present in this world, day by day, not worrying about tomorrow, but at the very same time, we live our life present in this world, knowing that whatever does come tomorrow and whatever may come today is part of God's plan and part of God's purpose, and He will make all things beautiful. In his time. And that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. Whether it is life or death. Mourning or dancing. Joy or sadness. Peace or war. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Solomon pins those words to give us hope because this is the reality of life. All things, all things are for his glory. This is the purpose of all things, that he may be glorified. We humans don't like that answer we don't like that reality, but we must humble ourselves. We must get over ourselves. And we must recognize that we exist. We were created and all things are for his glory. And that is good news and that is good for us. Verse 4, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Why has God done this? That they will be trees of righteousness. We are trees of righteousness, the planning of the Lord for his glory, but also for his purpose. God does not plant trees just for show, but to accomplish his purpose. We trees are called to rebuild old ruined things. We're called to raise up the formerly desolate things. We are planted to repair the ruined cities and the things left in desolation by many generations. For Judah and Jerusalem, this was a physical rebuilding after captivity. But God and the prophet here are speaking far beyond the rebuilding of Jerusalem and Judah. God and the prophet are speaking for us today we are to be trees of righteousness, deeply rooted in Jesus. We are to rebuild the old ruins, raise up former desolations, and repair ruined cities, and restore the desolations of many generations before us. We are literally living in this time now. This is literally what we are to be doing today. This is the work before us when we think of the current state of the church in our nation and in much of the world. 
And when we think of our own nation and the generations of godless desolation that have brought us to this point in our history, we have a choice to make. We all are at a crossroads. We can, like generations past, leave the ruins and the desolation thinking that they do not matter, but they do. Heaven is not our only goal. To escape this earth and make it to heaven is not our only goal. The purpose for God planting us here is to rebuild, to raise up, and to restore. For whatever the reason, deception, apathy, complacency, selfishness, laziness, or any other host of potential excuses, we can wait no longer. It is high time to get to work rebuilding, raising up, and restoring. You might say, well, where do I start? Start right here. Start right where you are. We have a church and a nation and a culture in ruin. God will not allow his church to remain as such. He will fulfill his promise He is building Jerusalem and she will be glorious when she is completed. If we do not do the work, God will raise up another generation to do it. But why should he? When we are here and we are now and the work is plain before us. God anointed Jesus for this work. Jesus has anointed and commanded us for this work. We will either obey or disobey. The consequence of our disobedience will only grow more severe for coming generations if we do not repent and return to the purposes of God and become the trees of righteousness he has planted us to be. We are called trees of righteousness. We must be the trees God has planted us to be. We are the planting of the Lord for his purpose. May we find his joy as we strive to achieve his purpose for our planting. And through it all, may he be glorified. Amen. So as you stand for the charge, I'm going to give you kind of a two-part charge. And the first is related to the baptism we just did. I baptized Anderson Royce Ulmer and Derek Oscar Riley. And I want to give a charge to us as a congregation. That is, Anderson and Derek have now received baptism and are now received into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and into this local body, Christ Fellowship Church. You, the people of this congregation, in receiving Anderson and Derek, promise with God's help to be their people to the end that Anderson and Derek may faithfully walk in Christ all their days and come at last. Christ's eternal kingdom. Their discipleship, their spiritual life is not just the responsibility of their parents, their family, their grandparents. It is not just God. 
but God has entrusted them into our care as their brothers and their sisters. And when God asked Cain, where is your brother? And Cain answered, am I my brother's keeper? The implied answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. So we are our brother's keeper. We are Anderson's keeper. We are Derek's keeper. And we all walk together. And we're here to support them, to love them, to encourage them that they would do just as this charge charges us, that they would at last come into Christ's eternal kingdom. Not because they're baptized, but because of all their baptism signifies and because of what they have professed. Amen. As we have seen these two young trees baptized into the covenant body of Christ, let us rejoice and let us take heart. Remember, we are trees to build cities, to raise up ruins, and to bring restoration. And what we witness today with the baptism of these two young men, this is exactly how we are going to do that. This is how we will change our world. This is how we are charged to, to rebuild the old ruins, raise up the former desolations, and repair ruined cities. This is how we will restore the desolations of former generations for the betterment of future generations. This is our charge, church. Let's perform it well to His glory. Amen.